Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the second series of Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, office coordinator at the Sainsbury Institute and a researcher of Japanese war heritage. This week we are joined by Caleb Carter, Assistant Professor of Japanese Religions and Buddhist Studies at Kyushu University to discuss power spots, or power spotto, as they're known in Japan. Caleb walks us through how a global movement which began in the 1960s USA and UK, claiming their healing energies at sites of natural beauty, came to be embraced in Japan, peaking in popularity as recently as 2010. We explored how this communal term has been applied at Shinto shrines and Buddhist temples to a mixed reception from religious authorities, as well as unexpected uses of the term at heritage sites of a more grisly nature. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, Caleb. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Oliver. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here with you today. So first off, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Sure, yeah. So uh, I'm assistant professor of Japanese religions and Buddhist studies at Kyushu University, which is in uh, Fukuoka in Japan. I focus especially on something called Shugendo, which is a mountain-based tradition. And I guess in terms of my interests, I think from a young age, I I sort of grew up around mountains, especially along the, the east coast of the U.S., Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina or White Mountains in New Hampshire. And so kind of as I, as I grew up, I, I sort of felt an affinity with mountains. And when I got into college, I, I got really interested in uh, climbing, rock climbing and mountaineering. And it was also interested in, in kind of other cultures, religious beliefs and practices in particular, sort of beyond my own background. I went to a small college in Colorado, which did not have too strong of an Asian studies program, uh, although I did make it to Nepal for a study abroad program. And then after college, uh, eventually I joined the, the JET program. So I was teaching English in Japan for three years, kind of with an aspiration to learn enough Japanese to apply to graduate schools eventually. And while I was there, I, I heard about this thing called Shugendo and, and realized that it was kind of learned that it was this mountain-based religion really focused on austere ascetic practices in, in the mountains and, and sort of aligning or assimilating with, with the deities there. And so given my background, my interest, it seemed like a, a, a perfect fit, you know. My dissertation research, and, and I, I went on to graduate school at UCLA, was on Shugendo at a, at a particular mountain site. It's called Togakushi. It's in Nagano Prefecture. And generally, the research was historically based. So I was kind of looking, looking at the historical emergence of Shugendo, uh, kind of late medieval through Edo period. And so, uh, you know, mostly I was, it was historical, but I did go to the mountain uh, frequently just to, to get a sense of the place itself, too. And it was there that I learned about this sort of more contemporary phenomenon called power spots and this was a, this, a sort of surprise to me, especially, I don't know, as 
for for historians listening <laughs> to the podcast. Uh, often we're sort of our minds are really in the past, and and so this was a bit of a rupture for me. But but I got really interested in it and thought it would be a fun and sort of exciting project in and of itself. So that's kind of what led me on on this research into power spots. I see. Thank you. It's great to hear that kind of personal connection you have with your own research field with the with the mountain. It's definitely great. So uh, let's begin by defining the term power spots. In Japanese, the term is power spot, a loaned term from English, which means it lacks a fixed meaning, which traditional Japanese words tend to have and implies the term was imported from overseas. So uh, where does the term originate? When did it become popular in Japan? And how is it used today? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, power spot, as you as you note there, it's obviously not originally a Japanese term. And to understand the origins of it, we have to kind of travel back to, say, uh, 1960s and 70s kind of counterculture, especially in uh, the US and England. During this time, you have ideas kind of circulating about the earth, some of which kind of situated as as a living organism itself. And so as a living organism, you have these paths of energy that circulate around the earth and particular places on the earth that kind of channel this energy. And so this is sort of a broad kind of new age millennial movement. There's, there's many different theories and ideas involved in it, but it began to center on places that people believed one time or another, certain groups identified as a power spot. So there's a bit of romanticism and, and we could say cultural appropriation involved with this, but say uh, Native American spots and say Arizona, that, that the idea was these Native Americans understood that this was a place that sort of irradiated a, a sort of special energy. And so they'd go there and uh, connect with that energy for, for healing or for their own sort of spiritual cultivation and, and whatnot. And by the 1980s, this idea becomes really sort of global and comes to Japan too. And so there are sort of sources that discuss uh, power spots, either from a sort of visitor's perspective in, in English kind of accounts around places like Izumo Taisha, for example, or Fujisan, Mount Fuji. Um, and then you have Japanese accounts of this too in, in late uh, 1980s, and especially around 1991, uh, someone writes a, a guidebook in Japanese to uh, power spots in uh, Japan. Um, and so originally, the way in which power spots are described in a Japanese context is through these global in influences. So there's you know, references to the ancient pyramids, for example, or uh, Aztec ruins and whatnot. Uh, and then the idea that, okay, we have these power spots too at places like Fuji and Tenkawa, which is, a, is an early place where uh, kind of artists and musicians were going to the spot. It has Shugendo roots. It's in Wakayama Prefecture. And, and gradually, uh, I would say over the 90s, it, it's still a, a fairly uh, marginal movement in Japan, but it begins to kind of take on more characteristics of Japanese religiosity. So in Japanese religions, for example, there's a real emphasis on uh, Genze Diaku, which literally translates into kind of benefits in this world, in this lifetime. So not, not necessarily the afterlife, but 
things like purification, for example, or prosperity, uh, or health for your family, um, healing. So gradually, as people begin to learn about this new idea of power spots, they will go there for reasons in which they might go to a, a shrine or, or a temple, for instance. And, and so that's kind of how the notion of power spot begins to become more uh, spoto in, in, say, a Japanese context. I see. It sounds quite open to interpretation and people go to it for their own needs. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's interesting, like from a historical perspective, often you're, the, the farther you go back, you're very limited in terms of what viewpoints you can access, right? In, in terms of uh, especially textual materials. One thing that I found kind of overwhelming with research on power spots is I got so many different interpretations on the on the ground of um essentially what i did was i, I after learning about my own site of research togachi being a, a power spot I, I started going to other places that were mentioned in some of these guidebooks and online and just uh talking to people and, and asking what they believed a power spot was and so i think some of the most common responses i got was that you know, it's a little bit hard to define, but there's something special about the air, the, the kooky, mm. or a certain key, a certain kind of atmosphere to the place. Again, these are really sort of beautiful spots, um, often in rural areas, but there's ones in, say, places like Tokyo, too, that often a, a shrine can be somewhat of a sh sanctuary, too, away from kind of the urban congestion and whatnot. And so I think people would often go... Sometimes on weekends, you know, often as maybe a refuge, but also out of curiosity, especially as this idea was becoming more well known, I think in the last, well, it, it sort of peaked probably around 2010, especially through uh, mass media and whatnot. But, it, but it's still, as it began to circulate, people were often genuinely curious. So they might not have a specific answer themselves, but would go and then see other people going to a place as a power spot. And, and so, yeah, again, there, there's sort of a myriad of different ways in which people experience that, that notion and, and the place when they, when they arrive there. Yeah, that leads well on to the next question. So uh, your article, Power Spots and the Charged Landscape of Shinto, indicates that the term has been merged with the Shinto sites, as well as Buddhist temples and areas of natural beauty in Japan. How did this come about? And what has been the reaction from priests to this new group of visitors? So when the idea first comes, uh, as I mentioned before, that, that book, for example, titled something like um, Hakken Power Spotto, uh, Power Spots Discovered, uh, it, it's, it's very much in this sort of um, international uh, sphere of New Age movements with these places that are connected with an ancient past or, or archaeological remnants or places of kind of majestic wonder. And that continues in Japan. So, so either um, natural places, some natural points of beauty, some Buddhist temples, some shrines. So that's how it begins. But in the 2000s, someone named Ehara Hiroyuki comes along and he is an ordained Shinto priest who becomes a very famous, especially through his his books and TV appearances, interviews and whatnot, as a spiritual counselor, spiritual counselor. Um, 
And what he does is he goes specifically to Shinto shrines uh, all around the country. And he shows up with a big TV crew and he's standing before a really kind of beautiful backdrop and he, and he has his arms stretched outward and he sort of remarks on the amazing energy of the place, the power of the place. And that really began a sort of alignment of the power spot movement or, or notions around power spots with Shinto shrines, especially due to his influence. And over time, I think most people in Japan have come to identify the two together. But there are still Buddhist temples that are either identified as power spots or, or there's say one in Fukushima that I went to, a, a rather small one, where the priest there decided that this is a way to kind of bring back, uh, this was actually after 311 and the, the area around had been devastated by the tsunami, but one way to bring in more visitors. And so he began promoting his temple as a power spot. So you do have places like that too. And then in terms of the priesthood, it's varied, right? So of course, this is not a, a sort of singular group, but priests within the Shinto organization have, have quite different ideas. I think as, as many listening are probably aware, Japan is going through real challenges in terms of demographics with a depopulation of the countryside and declining birth rate. And so a lot of shrines and, and temples are, are really sort of ailing in terms of their own memberships and, and parishes. And so I think a, a lot of priests see power spots as one way to, that sort of brings in new visitors. And so they're, they're fairly accommodating. Some Shinto priests that I spoke with even interpret it in theological terms that even if the word power spot is a new term itself, that the idea that these places were powerful goes back historically, right, as pilgrimage centers, as places where the gods reside. And so it's perfectly compatible to have this new idea come in, right? Some others described it as somewhat of a nuisance if they had, especially during the sort of real power spot boom around 2000. 10, that, that time period, that you get people kind of coming in with almost blinders, like going to certain spots in a shrine, like say a, a giant tree, a shimboku that had a shimanao around it or, or a stone, and then maybe leaving. I, I guess I, I never saw that. It seemed like people often will generally go to worship at the, at the high den or the, or the worship hall too. But some unease maybe that visitors might have a restrictive view of what the shrine was if they only thought of it as a power spot. And so a priest that I spoke to at Takachiho, for example, in Miyazaki said that we totally welcome it because it brings in new people. And maybe when they get here, then they also observe um, the haiden too, or they come and speak with us and we can, we can talk about our own ideas with Shinto and, and with the shrine here. So there's that sense that it can, it's sort of a, a sort of gateway, right, <laughs> to the shrine. Um, there is also more ideological resistance too, and this is something we can talk about too. But the Association of Shrines, Jinja Honsho, takes a more a uh, orthodox vision, singular vision of what Shinto is, and that is something that is 
more of a national symbol that is a sort of public duty or uh, uh, civic aspect of Japan that aligns with the emperor and is something that's been with the country since ancient times. And, and so that's almost sort of rem- reminiscent of Meiji period or, or kind of wartime Japan, but it's, it still is promoted by Jinja Honsho. And so something like power spot, right, a, a term that's obviously been brought in, doesn't rest within that singular vision of, of what they are trying to create, sort of a stable meaning of Shinto. And then at Issei, I went to Issei too, and Issei is a, of course, it's extremely popular whether you're into power spots or not, but as a power spot, it's also very popular with people. I, I spoke with people there that go there on a monthly basis just to kind of absorb the, the energy of the spot. But the priests there hew more toward the more conservative view of Shinto and, and of Issei. And so if you ask them there, they'll at least my experience is that they'll tell you this, you know, this is not a power spot. Um, <laughs> right. So, so it's, it, it depends where you are. I think one interesting aspect that I learned was that the farther you go outward, say to less famous sites, sometimes the more receptivity there is toward power spots. Again, it's a way that, that brings people there. And so it's almost sort of, an ideological stance on the part of Jinja Honsho in tension with a more uh, practical or economic set of interests on the part of local shrines and, and the priests there. I see. Yeah, I was surprised to hear that there were some priests who were quite against the idea of power spots being used to refer to their shrines. I would have thought that, you know, getting anyone through the door or through the tori, if you will, um, would have been only a good thing, but I can <laughs> see the uh, the points that you're making. So yeah. having had some experience with tourism studies myself, I know how difficult it can be to state broad motives for tourists to visit a certain site. I imagine this is further complicated at Shinto shrines and areas of natural beauty. Have you assessed the number of visitors motivated to come on account of the power pot status separately from other visitors? That's a good question. And for me, that maybe began as, as sort of a methodological issue from the start when I went to shrines that I had to think about. People go to shrines for any number of things. And, and how was I going to identify what reason they were there for? One of the first places I went to was Aso, Aso Shrine in Kumamoto. And, and there's a big caldera there. It's beautiful. And so people go there because it's a, somewhat of a famous shrine regionally. But then it, it's also um, thought of as, as a power spot. And from learning a little bit about it, reading about it, I was aware that there's certain practices associated with power spots. One of them would be to go up to one of these giant cedars that is already kind of sacralized at a, at a shrine because it's got the Shimenawa rope around it. And they would actually go and stand in front of it and place their hands on the bark and just stand there for a minute or two. And that was their way of kind of receiving that energy from the tree or a stone of significance in the shrine. And so at Asojinja, I noticed that people were doing this too. And as I began talking with them, I tried to just ask what this meant for them, why they came. And pretty quickly with, with Aso and, and then with other places too, 
I just found a, a pattern that you have people that are doing these practices that, that describe the place as a power spot, that there's a special sort of energy, a healing energy or, or a purifying energy that they're receiving through um, going to this place. That is sort of the group that we could say, these are definitely, you know, maybe we call them power spotters or, or something to that effect, that they go there for that reason, right? And they might go repeatedly to kind of replenish um, or fill their water from, from a stream, a water source that they believe is associated with this power. Then there are other people that are curious when they see other people doing this. So they may have seen on TV something with Ehara, for instance, uh, describing a power spot. And all of a sudden they're at a shrine and they see someone in front of these stones and, the, and they're sort of intrigued and they have some familiarity with the idea, and then they might go actually try it themselves. Uh, and some of them might say, oh, wow, this is, you know, I feel something here. And then their friend might say, you know, might laugh it off and, and say, that's ridiculous. I don't feel anything. So I think, you know, when, once you're on the ground and, and you see people and talk to people, you get uh, the full range of reactions. So, yeah, I guess that's, that's sort of a long answer. But I guess on one side of the spectrum, you, you have people that are, are seriously dedicated to the practice and to the places. And then you have a lot of people in the middle, right, that are there for multiple reasons. And, and maybe they learn about the association when they're there, or maybe, maybe they get sort of interested alongside other things they're doing at, at the shrine, too. Yeah, so it's definitely like a performative element to it that you can instantly recognize, okay, this is someone who either believes in it or is curious about power spots. Right, yeah. Yeah, I guess maybe maybe to add on to that, one thing that I noted that I thought was really interesting was that when I read about it from the previous scholarship, there wasn't too much at the time. But from what I read, it, it was sort of assigned this practice to generally young women, like, you know, <laughs> young women and moving in couples and pairs and whatnot. And I, what I found was, of course, they are there, but that there are really it's sort of representative of many different groups and age brackets that there were families that would go with their kids. There were couples, young married couples that might go, there are groups of friends, mixed gender. Uh, and I think that is maybe a, an assumption that was put forth because power spots were often targeting uh, younger women through journals, right? Through young women's magazines, things like that. And so if you only study the journals, then, then you're going to come to the assumption that it must only be this targeted group that's going. But um, it's quite drift, different. And I think some priests that I spoke with also mentioned that in almost a dismissive way that this is you know, sort of a fad among young people kind of thing. And therefore, it's not really worthy of our attention. And so one thing that I found is, is, is by noticing a real wide swath of the population visiting that it becomes less easy to dismiss and, and, and um, that uh, it's a different way of, of understanding the movement on a much um, broader based level. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, from reading your article, it seems like the criteria of a power spot is quite broad and that they continue to be discovered today. Who, if anyone, has the authority to declare sites a power spot and has social media impacted on this at all? I don't think there is an authority. I mean, uh, 
you can call something a power spot and now it's a power spot because you called it a power spot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds a bit circular, but, but I think it is in that sense that when you're, when you're operating outside of organized religion, it's really anyone's statement to make, right? Sure. And so, yeah, the, there are published books, guidebooks to power spots where authors will identify power spots. And we don't really know where that information necessarily comes from. Social media, right? People remarking through Facebook groups. It was, what was the old um, web mixy, right? That's no, that got sort of <laughs> replaced by Facebook, but that was an early forum. And so I think you have that, that sort of online space too in identifying power spots or again, through someone like Ahada going there. And that's sort of interesting because that is maybe an external or outside identification of a place to be a power spot. It's not coming from the priests themselves, in other words. This may um, have been a actual you know, point of friction if, if a shrine is a member to Jinja Honcho, the, the Association of Shrines, then they're not necessarily going to promote themselves as a power spot. But if it comes from the outside, then that's perfectly acceptable. And I think o- over time, especially in the last couple of years, I've been just living in Japan and going to shrines. I've seen more shrines having like signage by a place. There's a, there's a shrine in Fukuoka, um, Hakozaki, which is quite famous. And they have a stone there that's kind of partially emerged from otherwise flat ground. And people have been going there for centuries. You can, you can see it in illustrations from the early Edo period. But a few years ago, a sign went up right next to it claiming, you know, this is a power spot. And, and so shrines themselves now are adopting the term more as, as they see the uh, popularity of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if I may throw in a, a curious example of a power spot, I'd like to draw upon a case study from my own research, a burial mound called Mimizuka in the middle of Kyoto. This mound was built over 400 years ago by Toyotomi Hideyoshi, following the samurai invasion of Korea, the Imjin War, and contains over 35,000 ears and noses taken as war trophies by the samurai to mark their service there. Looking at the Google map reviews of Mimizuka, I couldn't help but notice multiple reviews claiming the site was a power spot, or even that Hideyoshi <laughs> was trying to make a power spot there. Now, given the examples in your article largely relates to Shinto mythology, how would you explain this definition of Mimizuka as a power spot, or is it a new use of the term altogether? Wow, yeah, that's fascinating. So, so first of all, just to maybe ask you a question or two, when they describe Mimizuka as a power spot, they're relating it to Hideyoshi? It's not uniform. <laughs> as we yeah, of course. Kind of like, yeah. As we were saying that many people can't just say, oh, it's a power spot in a single sentence review. Uh, right. Although someone did definitely say uh, Hideyoshi tried to make a power spot here. So yeah, not uniform, but but power spot was a, was a recurring theme and they would link Hideyoshi to that, yeah. yeah. Right, okay. I guess one thing that occurs to me is that, you know, as, as researchers, we often have a very peculiar understanding of a site, right? Through, mm-hmm. say, a very historical lens. And most people don't share that, right? <laughs> so, 
uh, unless they're real history buffs, um, that may be something they're somewhat aware of or not, not aware of at all or, or um, uh, you know, the, the sort of full range. So I, I guess with these remarks, you, I mean, you've already looked at what people say about it. I think it can be as simple as knowing it's a famous place. It has deep historical roots with this famous figure that's still celebrated in, in Japan as one of the unifiers of the country. And so therefore it, it must be sort of a, a powerful site, right? Mm. Uh, and so you could kind of come to a conclusion just based on that. And maybe there is a sort of ultra nationalist side to it as well. I think that would be interesting if you found references to bodily relics being related to that. Um, mm. I, don't, I don't know if you've found that or not, but uh, mm. that, that's a bit more on the morbid side. I suppose. Yeah, but, I think that's what struck me most yeah. is that this site is definitely, it's not, <laughs> the uh, atmosphere there is, uh, it's, it's not one of the beautiful mountain forests or of the open coast. It's definitely got a very heavy atmosphere to it. I mean, I'm reluctant to use the term dark heritage, but it has been described as, as that before. And I'm wondering if, do you know of any other cases of so-called dark heritage sites being referred to as power spots? Okay, yeah. So there, there is an app that I found a while back. It sort of went out of use, but I remember using it in teaching. And uh, the title was something like Zetai Itadame Basho, something to that effect, where it was, it basically was a map with, with pin drops across the country of where, um, multiple murders had occurred or mm. I remember being really interested at the time because we were living in uh, Shinagawa Ku in, in the Tokyo area. And we lived really close to um, one of uh, the execution grounds. So there was two ex execution spots um, on the periphery of Edo. And, and this was, it was right along the Tokaido, right? The, the sort of Mm -hmm. main road that people would come in and and so there they would see uh decapitated heads and and that type of thing as sort of a warning that you're entering the shogun city and, and you better be careful yeah. um that that site was was mentioned on this on this app mm. um ultimately i'm not sure how much this particular app took off uh and i'm sure there are other cases too so, yeah, maybe there is some of that. I guess I didn't really experience it, but maybe that's also reflective of the places I went to. So have you spent some time there and seen anyone like with their arms outstretched or anything to that effect? It's, it's quite a deserted and under-advertised location. I mean, it, it's, it's right in the middle of a tourist center in Kyoto. So yeah. it's, it's next to the, um, the Toyokuni Shrine to Hideyoshi. It's right next to that. So mm. there's some Shinto connection there, but also a number of significant temples are within a stone's throw away. So there is a large amount of tourist traffic. But the reason it caught my attention was that it didn't have any English translation there, which was unusual for any kind of significant site in central Kyoto. Uh, it was just Japanese and Korean. Yeah, imagine it's not the kind of place that Kyoto would want to advertise to foreign yeah. visitors. <laughs> Yeah, I'd be sort of surprised if you found a groundswell of dark 
tourists that were going there and trying to sort of feed off of, I don't know, deathly energy or whatnot. Um, so at, at that point in the research process, maybe if you don't find more beyond the Google reviews, it's, it's a little bit hard to extrapolate more from beyond that. Mm. Um, there is a, do you know the, the site in um, Tokyo, uh, where is it, Temachi maybe, of uh, Taira no Masukado, um, this kind of, what is he, like 11th century warrior that, that staged a rebellion against the court and was eventually hunted down and executed. But then because he was from what's now the Tokyo area, his, his head leapt, sort of bounced back to his homeland from the court <laughs> and became worshipped as a mound. At first, he was, he was sort of uh, an ondio, sort of creating uh -huh. havoc in the area and, and against the court. And so then, of course, he's turned into an object of worship. Um, and now if you go there, it's one of the most expensive real estate areas in the country, if not in the world. And so there's skyscrapers everywhere, but they've preserved this, you know, it's, it's heavily reduced little spot for his shrine and, and people still go there. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with his head so much as the fact that he brings good luck, um, especially, you know, young uh, corporate workers who have left their um, prefectures to come to work in the city, they'll go there and they'll pray for a safe return back to their, you know, home, um, mm. just like <laughs> Mascado did. So again, it's, you know, I think you get such a sort of myriad of motivations um, with reasons why people go to these sites. And the, the most you can do is sort of gather what evidence you have and then, and then see what comes of it. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank, thank you for answering all of my questions, Caleb. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects you're currently working on? Sure. Yeah, I guess one I'm wrapping up right now is um, a book based on that, that research I did on Togakushi. So that's really looking at how Shugendo took shape historically and especially through the lens of a, of a regional site. And so that is a book that's coming out through University of Hawaii next summer. And my next project, I'm looking at more modern periods. So I'm really interested in kind of a confluence between say mountain devotion in Japan with mountaineering that enters in the late 19th century, first through English visitors and then gains traction among a sort of mountaineering circle in the early 20th century. So sort of looking at maybe how those two spheres of, say, something that we consider sacred and then something we consider secular, how they're not so separated. So that's really in the beginning stages, but I'm, I'm really excited about diving into that research. And then, yeah, you know, I, I continue going to, to shrines and temples and, and seeing what's going on with power spots. I've got one more essay coming out in the, it's going to be an Oxford handbook on religious space and place. So that's sort of looking at power spots through the, um, through theories of, of space and place. So that's forthcoming as well. Great. Exciting stuff. We'll be looking forward to that. Thank you, Caleb. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Thanks so much for the, for the time. You can find the link to Caleb's research profile in the description below. 
Next week, we will be joined by Michael Kodaka, PhD candidate at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, to discuss studying pornography, the challenges that come with researching such a contentious subject, and the insights we can gain from it. Michael will also share her research on Jossin Mike pornography, or porn for women, being produced in the Japanese adult video industry, and how this new genre has challenged the mainstream pornography shot for the heterosexual male gaze. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.